0: what does an authentic Christian church look like? What are the distinguishing characteristics of a local church that brings joy to her risen and reigning Savior? How do you see that? What does it look like? Well, of course, Christ alone can make that determination fully and perfectly. We can realize as we look to the scriptures that there are many Christian churches that are Christian in name only. So we would consider what a real church looks like and realize that a true church comprises members who have been saved from God's judgment against sinners by trusting in Jesus' death in their place as the all-sufficient payment for their sins. A true church comprises people. It is people who are regenerated as the risen and reigning Christ pours out His Spirit to wash them of their sins and to pay the final judgment against those sins. This is a true church. It is in Christ. There's a living, dynamic relationship, a vibrant relationship in Him because there is new life in Him. We might say secondly, that a true church is also organized in conformity to the guidelines the Holy Spirit reveals in the pages of the New Testament. So there is a church. It's not just a simple gathering of believers somewhere, in some home or in a coffee shop or even in a church building necessarily. There are spiritually qualified offices that Christ gives to His church and encourages churches to recognize of elders and deacons in these days once Apostles, but also specific spiritual activities are included. There's faithful preaching and teaching of the Bible, a desire to understand what the written word truly teaches and putting it all together accurately and faithfully. There's the observation of the Lord's Supper together. There is baptism as new believers come into the assembly. This is part of what a true church is up to. There is formative and corrective church discipline that is part of the process of discerning who is regenerate and who is walking and growing in faithfulness to the Lord. So an authentic local church of the risen Christ has a regenerate membership and it conforms its organization and its practice to the New Testament documents. But as we come to Colossians chapter 3 today, we are reminded that we dare not stop there. There is another significant mark to the true church of Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 paints a convicting portrait of what a genuine local church looks like relationally. Who we are as born-again believers united by faith to Christ is to radically affect the way that we relate to one another as members of the local body of believers, the followers of Christ. It's to have a genuine effect. Now, there's some things that are assumed here, and that is that there will be time spent together. That there will be fellowship and relationship together. But here today we focus particularly upon what those relationships are to look like in active pursuit as the living body of Christ in this world. The book of Colossians, as we have been learning By virtue of our fallen nature in Adam, we once lived by the dictates of our sinful nature. And we didn't treat one another according to the law of Christ, according to the love of Christ for us. We treated one another differently, selfishly, even harmfully. We were in Adam, and this is how people in Adam live. They live for themselves. But by God's grace, those who trust the gospel are united by faith to the risen Christ. And in that faith event, and in that transformational event, we die. We die to who we are. We die to our identity in Adam, and we become new creatures in Christ. Now among the Colossians were these false teachers who were coming along and influencing them to focus away from their fullness in Christ. From their completeness in Him. Not to say there's no more to grow and learn and develop. But they are fully received, accepted, grounded, made alive in Christ. But these false teachers were coming around who were saying, "Yeah, That's good, we're with you in that, that's nice stuff. But we want to point you to the really higher life. To the better life. How to get closer to God. And they introduced to them rituals. Of religion that they should practice or sensational revelations. I want to talk to you about this. Yeah, we know the Bible and what it says and Jesus and all, but listen to this revelation that I've had. Let me recount this to you. You can't believe what I heard from an angel this week. And let me help you to learn how to set aside food, for instance, and observe certain days and in this whole system to be able to tap the angels. Wouldn't you love to do that? Paul comes in here and says, don't let anyone do that to you. Don't let anyone come in and tell you that you are incomplete in Christ. There is a fullness in Him. There is a richness in Him. There is an identity in Him. And that is where you need to focus. Don't turn away to ritualism. Don't turn away to sensationalism. The problem with all of this teaching, chapter 2 and verse 19, he reminds them, is that these false teachers are not holding fast to the head. They're not holding fast to Christ crucified and risen. And so they're drawing you away to find your interest in other things, in sensational accounts, in new ideas in certain rituals that will make you acceptable to God. They're not holding fast to the head. Don't follow them. Don't let anyone disparage your relationship to Christ. It is in that that you find your fullness, for in Him all fullness dwells in bodily form. You've got nowhere else to go. You've got it all in Him. And so in chapter 3 and verse 1, we've seen very logically, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See life from your identity in Christ. Christ. Move in that direction. Verse 5, this is what it means negatively. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. That was your old life. In Adam, that's how people live. But now, verse 8, you must put them all away, strip them off, weed these things out of your life and living this way. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Why? Seeing that you have put off the old self, the old man, the identity in Adam with its practices, and you have put on the new self. So strip these things off. This is not who you are. This is not how a Christian church is to live. This is not how a believer in Christ is to live. But then we come to verse 12. Here's what you're to put on. Here's what you're to put on. Now a few comments about verses 12 through 17 before we delve in. I want to bring attention to this at the end if there is time and opportunity, but let me say it at the beginning because of such great concern. We're going to look at list of, a list of virtues of what we are to pursue, who we are to be, how we are to live, and it is very easy for people to read such lists and say, ah, I've got to do better at that. I've, I've got to work harder at this. Why do I fall so short in this area? Why don't I do this as well as I should? And you're going through this whole list of virtues looking at everything in the wrong way. It's not about you and your effort that's going to allow you to clothe yourself with these virtues. Living out your true identity in Christ is only achievable by responding to who you are as a new creation in Him. He is your righteousness. Not you figuring this out and working harder and becoming a better Christian. Your identity is in Him. The power is in Him. The work is in the Spirit of God. We don't stand there and wait around for God to do something. We actively participate with Him, but the power is in Christ. It's in your identity in Him. So keep that in mind as we look through this list of virtues. It's not seeking to turn us to self-dependence. It's seeking to turn us to utter dependence on Christ. Secondly, I'd like us to note the thoroughly relational corporate nature of this exhortation. We must think of our life together as the regenerate body of Christ. And there's always kind of this, this dual conversation going on. Everything that we say in Scripture, everything we talk about in the Christian life is about us. I have to change my own heart. I, I, or I have to dress my own heart. I have to depend on Christ to change me. And I, I need to deal with this. I need to strip off this sin. I, et cetera. But there's also the conversation going on that this is about us. This is about us as a church and how we relate together so that our identity is in Christ, not self. That identity is also in the body of Christ, the church. And we need to see ourselves as individual members laboring together as an assembly as we go through this list. Not making it simply and purely a personal inventory, but rather a corporate inventory. What does a true church look like? Here it is. At least one aspect of it. We've looked at other, mentioned others today, but this is about that one aspect. A third point before we delve in, and that's about the outline. Uh, it's not necessary probably in verses 12 through 17 to have a distinctive outline of points that he works himself through. But it's really kind of one sustained exhortation. But I'm going to present three points that are suggested by the way that Paul groups these verbs. So don't make over much of these points, but they're all obviously ideas that flow from the passage. So let me begin with the first as we move into verses 12-14. through And that is this. Clothe yourselves with the virtues of your new identity in Christ. Clothe yourselves with the virtues of your new identity in Christ. Let's look at verse 12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, "...and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." Verse 12, "...put on then," "...put on then," follows the stripping off of the immorality of the godlessness of our life in Adam." Here is what we are to put on. And we we notice here that the basis of Paul's instruction through this section is declared here right at the beginning of verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So we have the then, which speaks of stripping off the ungodly ways, or then, pointing back to verse 10, you have put off the old man in Adam, the old self, Having done that, now put on, before I get there, I want to just say, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's the basis. What is it? If you're following me, and I think if we're following Paul here, he's saying it's who you are in Christ. It's who you are in him. You are God's chosen ones. God has chosen you as His child. You belong to Him by virtue of His electing grace like Abram of old. You are holy ones. You are set apart from the world and dedicated to God as His children. You are beloved. God has chosen to rescue you off the trash heap of your sin. He has set you apart as His holy child for one reason. He chose to love you. You didn't earn it. It's not where you were born, it's not what you deserve. He loved you. It's in the, on this basis that we now put on the virtues of Christ. We are beloved children, chosen by God. The most brilliant man I've had the privilege to meet in my life once told Beth and me that there were two things that he was prepared to ask Jesus when he met him in eternity. He'd come to faith later in life as a, or as a college student, I guess, and uh, he, he, and I can't remember what the first one was. It was profound, but it, it, the second one stuck with me through the years. He told us with tears welling up in his eyes The thing that I want to ask Jesus is why me? Well, that's it, isn't it? Why me? This is a man who spends his days humbling people with his brilliant mind and scientific skills. But there's the humility that comes when we really get it. Why me? There is no answer outside of the deep and eternal abiding love of God for his people. And when you take that to heart, You come to really recognize that I am chosen by God and set aside as His child out of this world, set apart to live for Him, that I am His loved child by His mercy and grace. Then, he says, on that basis, put on these virtues, compassionate hearts. The Greek is bowels of compassion. When we talk about a bowel movement, it's not a very lovely topic, is it? But when they talked about a bowel movement, they were talking in some sense of that inner surge of feeling for people in need. To be moved in one's bowels was an inner surge of heartfelt, compassionate regard for others. And the picture that we have here, of course, is Jesus, as He sees the crowds, He is moved with compassion. There's an inner response out of love for them because of their need. He didn't see them with petty pride. He didn't simply marvel at their numbers. He did not see them as an irritating inconvenience. He saw the masses of people before him and he was moved with compassion. He cared deeply about people. Kindness. What does the true church look like? People put the interests of others ahead of their own in kindness. Kindness is not combative with people or disinterested in them. It extends care. It looks at the needs of others and treats them kindly. Humility. Humility does not permit us to assert ourselves out of pride. It does not let us insist that people honor the reputation that we imagine for ourselves and when they don't honor that reputation, we're angry. Humility permits us to see ourselves for who we truly are. Sinners saved by grace and followers of a Savior who left the splendors of heaven and washed His disciples' feet. Humility is that spirit that says, I am at peace with God. I see myself for who I am as such a one. And I don't defend who I am. I defend who Christ is. Meekness. Is added then there at the end of verse 12. A meek person is one who is not impressed with himself or filled with her own self importance. To be meek is not to be weak. Rather, it is an inner quality that endures trials patiently and remains kind and respectful of others when under stress. Wow, this, the, the conviction should be rolling by about this point for all of us, all right? That under stress, thinking of others we think of ourselves when we're under stress kindness and meekness is certainly something we need to work to put on and patience patience is not short-tempered it's it's it is not free of anger i don't think that's the idea of patience but it displays anger in the proper time and place patience is jesus weaving together the whip that he will use in anger against those who were corrupting the temple It wasn't a fly-off-the-handle type of anger. Patience allows us to find the right time. Not our time, not our agenda, but the right time. Patience is the inner quality that does not blow up at others, does not lash out, does not spew bitterness or quit on people. It sticks with them. Patience. Verse 13, I think, is connected to the same stream, although he turns the phrase a bit differently, but he says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Bearing with one another. Well, that doesn't sound so noble, does it? it? It can be actually translated, put up with one another. Just putting up with one another. Hanging in there with people is what a true believer does. Relating to people is a messy business. And honestly, there are times we simply need to put up with each other, to bear with people and with the circumstances that we don't like. Jesus said, and as he bore this same, in evidence, the same virtue and bore this same challenge, he said, remember Matthew 17, O faithless and twisted generation, how long must I bear with you? Bearing with people, putting up with people, It's not canceling them, cutting them out, turning our back upon them, but continuing to endure day in and day out. It's not a virtue that stands on its own. If we just said bearing with each other is the ultimate virtue, not at all. It has to go with love and we're working our way there, but also forgiving one another. A body of believers that walks in close fellowship and serves Christ faithfully will have complaints against each other. We will wrong each other. We will offend each other. We will act selflessly toward one another from time to time. When our identity is in Christ, when Christ is our life, we respond to such offenses by forgiving. We do not keep a record of wrongs or hold grudges, but we rejoice to forgive and to reconcile with one another. And notice the motivation for such a forgiving spirit, the end of verse 13, is as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The local church should be an environment in which we are evidencing and practicing the forgiving grace of God. It's on display as we forgive one another. No excuse for our sin, knowing that others are to forgive us, but rather it is something that we are to take to heart to forgive others. Now, what does it mean, as the Lord has forgiven you? How do you take that? It could be, since the Lord has forgiven you, you are to forgive others. Or, in the way that the Lord has forgiven you, you are to forgive others. And perhaps there's no need for us necessarily to choose one or the other, but it's because of Christ's forgiveness of us that we can forgive. We would all affirm that. It is His forgiving grace that serves as our pattern in relating to one another. So as Christ has forgiven you, so we are to forgive. What is the spirit that should be in clear evidence among us? A spirit of forgiveness. And the motivation is something like this. Jesus was tortured to death to pay the price for my forgiveness. Who am I not to forgive the small sins others commit against me? Small sins, I know some of them seem very, very great, but when we compare it to what Christ has done for us, it pales in comparison. Let's not think of forgiveness in the psychological sense so commonly supported in our culture that this is something you just do in your mind to bring yourself at peace and you turn your back on the person who's harmed you. It has nothing to do with them. You're forgiving to gain peace for your own heart and emotions. Not at all. The forgiveness of Christ always works toward reconciliation. Reconciliation doesn't turn its back on the one that's being forgiven. It meets that person where they are and it says, I want to be reconciled with you. Your sin is in the way between us. I forgive you that we might be brought back into fellowship together. 14, And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is... Debatable as to specifically what he means by everything, but I take this to be that love is like a coat that you put on and binds all these other virtues together. Love for one another is to infuse every virtue. And if you think about this, you could go through this list and there could actually be a level of competitiveness in it. I mean, it's silly, but we do these little games. So I'm more humble than you are. We don't, we don't say that to anybody because it would sound so dumb, but in our mind we play that out. Look how humble I am, more than you. Or take any of the other virtues that are, that are referenced here. It can become competitive. It can become self-serving. But love infuses all of them with an other's orientation. Apart from love, even virtues can devolve into competition between members. They can devolve into dutiful obligation or into a martyr's complex. I am so meek. I am so patient. I bear with other people so wonderfully because there's so many dumb people out there to bear with. Love won't let us do that. Love says, I give my life away to you. I've been entrusted with a life. I've been trusted with abilities. I've been trusted with time and interest. And I pour it out for your good. And so, humbly, patiently bearing with other people, forgiving one another, we give ourselves away for the good of each other. That's what a Christian church looks like. That's what a genuine believer looks like. That's what we put on. This supreme virtue, I think, is the idea of it being above all others. It is the supreme virtue. It it infuses everything. As people age... As members spend more and more years together, as a church passes through seasons of life, the natural tendency is for our history to begin to pull us apart. It's happening in our nation. Just think of our nation's history. People begin to be pulled apart. We We grow tired of one another. We dent one another's pride. We can identify one another's weaknesses so clearly. Our only hope in all of this is love. It is to choose to live each day for one another's good to invest in each other. What does a real church look like? It's marked by sacrificial love. May God help us to so love one another as a church. Clothe yourselves with the virtues of your new identity in Christ. Secondly, as we move to verse 15, submit to the rule of the indwelling Christ as a body. Submit to the rule of the indwelling Christ as a body. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ may refer to the peace with God and resulting peace of soul that is ours as a result of our union with Christ. As believers in the gospel, we're no longer at war with God in our souls. And that inner peace is then to govern and it is to arbitrate our relationships with one another. We're not to give off a spirit of agitation. We're not to give off a spirit of distrust in one another or a desire to go to war as if we come to church with boxing gloves on and think that's gracious because I'm not going bare-knuckled. We are rather to exude a spirit of peace. What does a real church look like? People are at ease with one another. That's understated, but I think it includes that. They're at ease with one another. They trust one another because they're peaceful. They exude that spirit of peace. There's an aura of peace that flows from God to them and to them to others. We're called to be governed by such peace in one body. You notice there in verse 15. Very significant phrase. We are to concentrate on a corporate spirit of peace. That is, you and I, as we relate to each other, as we see one another and talk together, as we relate as a church and minister together, we are to be laboring, all of us together, to create an environment of peace. And to be thankful. A present tense, speaking of a habitual thanksgiving in our hearts, always giving thanks to God, and certainly giving thanks for one another. I wonder, in what ways is a peaceful spirit lacking in your soul, in mine? Where we bring agitation, we bring contention, we bring a disability into the body. We should be laboring to bring a spirit of peace. Now there's a place for analysis. There's a place for self-critique but not for a negative complaining spirit. There's no place for this in the church of Christ. He's called us to something higher. When we stop giving thanks to one another and when we stop giving thanks to God, we are on the fast track away from peace and we are moving into war. It is our task together to see who we are in Christ and to say, I'm going to move toward peace. I'm going to labor As a member of the church of Jesus Christ to bring peace. So let the peace of Christ be a a ruling arbiter among you. To this you were called as you're being thankful. Verse 16, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, I believe, to be the message about Christ. The message of the Gospel. His salvation through His death. His resurrection and the new life that we have in Him. Allow this message to dwell in you richly. That is to have a deeply rooted transformational influence upon you. The Gospel is central to all that we do and think and feel. It is to order our affections. It is to interpret the way that we see all of life. It is to be at the heart of how we treat one another. I go about life knowing Jesus died for me. He took my place. He suffered the cost of my sin. And I relate to you as if that actually happened. I'm moved by it in every conversation, in every relationship, in everything that I do. It dwells deeply within me by God's grace. That's what we're to put on. The gospel is central to all that we do. As Douglas Moo puts it, Paul is urging the community as a whole to put the message about Christ at the center of its corporate experience. We have sought never to put a building at the center of our corporate experience. We've sought never to put a culture at the center of our corporate experience. There's not a lot we can do to help ourselves with the building we have, the culture in which we live. That's life. That's a given. But it's not at the heart of who we are. Who we are should be who we would be in India, in China, in Pakistan, in Christ. We're in Christ. That's the focus that dwells deeply among us. Teaching and admonishing one another in songs. There's debate as to it's teaching, admonishing, comma singing, comma or is it teaching and admonishing one another with your songs? Which is very probable. One way we work to fill the church with the knowledge of Christ crucified and risen is to sing songs with rich biblical themes. That's going on in this place all the time. And I rejoice and I despair sometimes of how do you communicate the Word of God. But there's a wonderful alternative approach. It's kind of like the fastball and the curveball. There's a different velocity, a different speed, and when we're singing songs on Sunday morning as we have this morning, there is truth being taught slowly. You you just can't sing words real, real fast. The music makes you slow down, makes you think about it. And it, and it has a unique effect upon us as well. And by God's grace, we continue to see the church teaching itself good theology, admonishing one another. The singing of the church is to exhort, to encourage, even to correct. Have you been corrected by the singing of the church? Think about that. You should be. There's corrective, convicting statements that are being made and that we're singing to one another. So there's a message going on here right now with one voice sounding and the Spirit of God teaching all of our hearts in this moment. But in the singing of the church, we all raise our voices and we all teach one another and admonish one another. It's one of the reasons that a church has to be careful with what it sings with the text that is being displayed, does it display truth? It can't simply be a catchy tune or a popular song. It has to speak the truth of God. It admonishes in all wisdom. That is with skill and insight. Paul is not exhaustive here, but rather I think illustrates one way that we teach and admonish one another. And that is through, you see in verse 16, Psalms, hymns, And spiritual songs. I don't know that a rigid distinction can be supported in these statements, what these are. Songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's really common, particularly perhaps in America, for people to look at their church's culture and say, Here's the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that we say. We don't know exactly what they were, but certainly the Psalms drawing attention to the Old Testament Psalter and hymns. We have one very likely in chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, a rich, Christologically beautiful, a, a be- Christologically rich and beautiful text that's there, that teaches who Jesus is. Probably a a Christian hymn, an ancient hymn. Spiritual songs, a very broad word, what it means, we're not entirely sure. But there's different types of songs. Different types of singing that the church does to build itself up. Different content. So the gathered church of Jesus Christ is to be a singing church. It is to sing... Not for entertainment particularly, but it is to sing to build one another up. There's a spiritual work that is going on as the church sings, and this is Christ's intention. So he says, clothe yourselves with the virtues of your new identity in Christ. Submit to the rule of the indwelling Christ as a body. And thirdly, do everything for Christ's honor with thanksgiving to God. Now all of this flows together Indeed, we see that thankful hearts at the end of verse 16, and that will show itself at, the verse, at verse 17 as well, which we now read, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There it is. There's how it looks. Whatever we do in word or deed, it encompasses our relational interactions with people. What does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? In Jesus. It means in coordination with His character and will. Submissive to His Lordship. In response to His authority. Promoting His glory. This rules out church politics in which members jockey to secure their own selfish interests. This rules out handling the finances or facilities of the church in a dishonest manner. This rules out relating to the church with a primary focus of getting my way. And on and on and on it goes. Not in Adam, we're in Christ. And in Christ, we do everything in the name of Christ. Everything for His honor. Everything for His glory. Now, we don't do that perfectly. and We don't always know when we're not doing it perfectly. But we have this focus and mindset, that's why we exist as an assembly. I am acting for the glory of Jesus in what I'm doing, in what I'm saying, and how I'm ministering. That should be our, our focus. Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That probably means through Jesus. What does a true church look like? Members pursuing every activity in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. All laboring together for the glory and the exaltation of our Lord so what are these distinguishing characteristics that the risen, reigning, returning Christ is actively transforming us into his likeness by as we put these matters on, these virtues on. This passage paints a portrait of that church. It paints a portrait of that church. It's not a church that's given to ritual. There are rituals, There's nothing evil about a ritual in itself there's formal rituals and there's informal rituals and we're all driven by rituals but it's that's not what it's about it's not about the rituals of the church it's not about the history of the church it's not about sensationalism let's get really riled up about what our culture's doing what is happening in the public square And let's make that our rallying point. Oh, there's a lot of things we hold to that are under attack, and there's a lot of crumbling of the foundation underneath our feet, it would seem. But that's not our rallying point. A building is not our rallying point. We live in it, it defines us on some level, but it's not all significant. It's not a name. It's not a name, it's not a party spirit. This isn't what we're about. In fact, this passage, as William Barclay notes, makes this, and I quote him at length here, it's, he says it so well. It makes no mention of virtues like efficiency or cleverness, not even of diligence or industry. Not that these are unimportant, but the great basic Christian virtues are those which govern human relationships. Christianity is a community. It has on its divine side the amazing grace, the amazing gift of peace with God, and on its human side the triumphant solution of the problem of living together. Isn't that a great phrase? The problem of living together. Living together is a problem. Let's admit it. I mean, living on an island all by yourself is a problem too. And I think a larger problem... Sometimes we think it might be kind of nice, but not really. Living together with people is necessary, and living together with people is a problem. But we, we the church of Jesus Christ, live together as the chosen, separated, beloved children of God. We are united together as members of Christ's body. And that makes all the difference. It's rooted in Christ. This picture that we see here. This very convicting picture. I look at these virtues and I I don't know, would this characterize us? It certainly does in some ways. Does it characterize me? There's much growth that's needed. What this is, if we become confused by it or maybe even despair when we look at these virtues, what we're looking at in the pages of verses 12 through 17 is the face of Jesus Christ. This is what he looked like. These were the virtues that defined his person. He had a compassionate heart toward people, kindness. Humility, meekness, patience. He bore with others, patiently forgiving. And all of it infused with love. God's Word dwelt within Him and even in the singing of His people, He built them up in the truth. And everything that He did, He prayed it in John 17. Unlike you or I will ever be able to pray it, I always did what pleased you. I brought you glory on the earth by magnifying your name in everything that I did. This is the new humanity. This is the new person in Christ. This is the body of Christ. Does this beauty, this godly godliness mark our lives? Does it pulsate through Eden Baptist Church? Does it say to visitors, to our children, to a watching world, Jesus is alive! He is a lie because of the way that he's changing the way those people relate to each other, the way they deal with the problem of living with one another. I mentioned in the introduction the temptation in all of this to self-dependence. What I want to point us to, once again, is that we are in all of this living out who we are In Jesus Christ we're living out the new person that he has made us so this isn't a list of shame though it certainly is convicting and there are changes we need to make but it is a list of showing us the face of Jesus and saying the risen Christ through his spirit is transforming you and me into that person That these virtues would flow from our lives is the project that Jesus is up to. If you're in the project. If you have come to lay your sins in his hands. To trust that his death pays the penalty of those sins. To say, I don't want my old identity in Adam. I want to have the new identity in Christ. If you have come to saving faith in that message, He has made you a new person, this is who you are becoming. And the way there is for us to continue to identify with who Christ is and who we are in Him. If you're outside of Christ if you have not come to that place of regeneration and faith, there is no chance that this is going to be who you are becoming. There's no chance. You're going to serve yourself. You're going to serve your pride. You're going to serve your sensuality. And you, if you remain in that mode, are going to die utterly miserable and lost but in Christ there is hope to be made new. So if you've come to the place and you say, I'm sick of me. There's nothing but emptiness. There's nothing but futility. There's no hope in it. There's no joy in it. I'm sick of me. Then see the face in this page, in this passage, see the face of a Savior who calls you to Himself as man and God to give you salvation and to rescue you from you. And to rescue you from the judgment that comes to those who are separated from Christ because there's no other possibility. That salvation, he holds out to those who will come and believe. Lord, we are awed by what you're doing. We, we have to believe it by faith. We have to trust it by faith. A lot of times we don't see these virtues in our lives. We struggle. but I pray that little by little, step by step, you will bring us to clothe ourselves with them. And for those who know not Christ, may you bring them out of their self-effort out of their pursuit of one experience after another, out of their pursuit of standing on the little pinhead of self and trying to balance their life there. I plead that you give them a life, a life in Christ. For those of us who know you, we just pause here to give you thanks and to ask that we as a church might do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to you, our Father, through Christ. In his name we pray, amen.
1: As a way of reflecting as the family of God on what we've just heard, the song that was sung during the offertory, I'd encourage you to listen to it, to think about the words, to make it the meditation of your heart for just a few moments. And if you're able to sing, if the tune is one that's familiar to you, join right in and sing it from your hearts. Oh, how good it is. And seraphim, so with one voice we'll sing to the Lord, and with one voice we'll live out His word till the whole earth sees the Redeemer has come. For He dwells in the presence stand as we sing this last verse together. this morning we want to extend to you a special word of welcome and greeting and, and we trust that in some way you have seen personally that it is our goal for the message of Christ to define us and to be who we are is about as who we are about as a church we'd love to talk with you further and meet you this morning if you're able to um, stick around we